Our second reading is from the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter, verses 46 through 52, and can be found in your bulletin insert if you'd like to follow along. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Here ends our reading. I grew up with Bibles in every room of my house. Not because we were always reading them, but because there were only so many places in one room to integrate them naturally into the decor. And I suppose, entwined with that, it was also to give a nod to those books and to the lives of the people who entrusted them to us. Bibles from my family's history, my mother's, my father's, once meaningful, somehow still. I can still see an oversized family Bible, hard black leather, gold edges, decoratively placed in the piano room, a King James in the loft, a red-lettered, highlighted, margin-written, pliable one in the hall, a tiny green Gideon in the kitchen, which I always seem to find when looking for a pen. An old favorite in the hearth room, its leather binding beginning to crumble with age, and a zipper securing loose pages inside of what was left of that cover. There were Bibles in drawers, on shelves, in baskets, on countertops, and on tables. And there were two in my room. A small baby Bible with white lace and a delicate ribbon tying it closed. I kept it in a drawer in my nightstand, still in its plastic box, which had begun to crack. As a little girl, from time to time, I would take it out of the box, turn it over in my hands, gaze at it, and gently return it to its place. On a shelf beneath was my third grade Bible, a tradition of my home church, with the date it was given to me on inside, and my name embossed in gold on the front of its leather blue cover. The first time I remember opening the Bible to read for myself, it was with that third grade Bible in the quiet of the night. I thumbed through its pages until I landed on Job and read the story from start to finish. An emotional roller coaster ride, shock, 
insanity at the injustice, rage, confusion, disbelief, searching, numb, sorrow, gentle compassion, and then finally, tender acceptance. I closed the book and sat in the reverberating silence. Wow, that is a story. I remained taken by it for many years, and as my first naivete wore off and my critical discernment and interest in vigorous debates grew, my appreciation for Job, the Job story changed to irritation. It had become unsatisfying, a book of problematic theology. Even the resolution at the end I did not find very helpful, which was just after what we finished reading. I didn't go there this time. I couldn't do it. <laughs> so I wanted to avoid it. And when I was going through the lectionary options for this week, I wanted to avoid it. But I began to hear a trickling at first, gentle enough that I would listen, of others who also knew of the unsatisfying theology, but who still recognized something worth honoring in Job. I heard them saying Job wasn't about satisfying answers. It wasn't meant to be a sound theological treatise. And in fact, the ancient Hebrews wouldn't even have been familiar with philosophical debate the way we might be. Instead, Job was about that thing we human beings do, our search for meaning. One of those voices was scholar of medieval Hebrew literature, Raymond Shendlin. He speaks of the grieving in Job, the response to intense loss. While the Hebrews didn't theologize the way we might, they did have ancient wisdom that was passed on. And when there was a time of grieving, friends would come and offer that wisdom, remind each other of that wisdom. This was a part of comforting the bereaved, bringing the community. There were several speeches by Job's friends that arise throughout the book, which with implications about why suffering is happening that we might not find very helpful, and that even Job maybe didn't find very helpful, but they're coming out of their tradition of imparting the wisdom of the ancients. The text of Job itself is in poem form, and is thought to be an expanded version of an even older story, which was that there was this righteous man who ended up entering a time of suffering. His wife and all his friends advised him to abandon his God, but he remained steadfast, and he was rewarded twofold. And so that's the simple story, but it was expanded to include all of these speeches with a nod to that ancient wisdom carrying forward the tradition of comforting the bereaved even through the telling of the story. And the poetic form allows the author to include space and images and feeling that logical treaties wouldn't. And here, Shenlin says something that I found helpful, which was, if you remain attached to the logic train, which I have a tendency to do, then you are losing you, you lost from the beginning because, as the narrator indicates, there was no justifiable reason for why Job was suffering. 
So to be searching for a rational solution throughout the whole book, we're not actually going to get there. But what does happen is as the listener or reader, you are taken along on this emotional journey. Shenlin also suggests that Job is the one biblical character who voices the anger associated with suffering and bereavement. His anger arises from his own demand for meaning, from a refusal to yield emotionally to the terrible pointlessness of our suffering. Job is never reconciled. His heart demands meaning, even though intellectually he intuits and we know that he cannot have it. Shenlin says, Job knows and hates the truth, hates it precisely because he remains engaged in life. He thinks that the writer of Job is extremely observant of life and in grieving and in raging and in the passionate response to injustice is also implied an attachment and an, and an engagement with life, a profound hope that things might be, could be, or should be different. That as a part of the author's constitution, he is not able to give up the search for making sense of and exploring and totally feeling all that is a part of the loss that the character experiences and that the reader or listener also experiences. And maybe as the reader that indicates that I have hope, that we have hope, or a dream or a vision that the world could be different, that I want to believe in this possibility and that somebody shouldn't maliciously or playfully be given sorrow. It pulls on my concern, on our concern for our fellow human beings. And that's a powerful journey to be taken on. This persistent engagement with life, this mad hope, also seems to be present in our Mark text. As the story goes, there's a blind beggar sitting outside of Jericho, and in this version, Jesus is on his way out of Jericho. And the blind beggar hears it's Jesus and starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And initially he's rebuked. And just by the way, there's Jewish ancients are so amazing. His name also can be meaning rebuke. Son of Timaeus can be son of honor or son of dishonor. Son of shame, son of rebuke, son of clean, son of unclean. So there's a play thing there. What's happening there? So Jesus says, call him here. And so then this tone shifts and the followers of Jesus are given, are very gentle with him suddenly. And they say, yes, come forward. It's okay. Take heart. And so Jesus says to him, what can I do for you? And he says, my teacher, allow me to see again. Allow me to see again. And this is a story with a lot of symbolism, and I feel like I'm just going to go on and on with teaching you because it was helping me to teach myself. So bear with me. Um, so there's a lot of other tying back to images that keeps happening and to an emotional world along with those images. So not only does Bartimaeus have multiple meetings, but if we think of Jericho, if we were listening with Markan ears, if we think of Jericho, 
what happened outside of the walls of Jericho. The people, the Israelites, had been wandering around for 40 years in the desert, and they look across, and there is Jericho. And Joshua, this is in the book of Joshua, he is told to have the people march around the city's walls each day for seven days and to carry with them the Ark of the Covenant, that thing that is meant to be the representative of the closest to the presence of God. And on the seventh day, after marching around seven times on the seventh day, they're into sevens, they are to shout. And when they shout, the walls come tumbling down. So they too had the possibility of shame, of never actually coming to the promised land, and they have told themselves that they would. But after the seventh time on the seventh day, marching around the city, the walls come tumbling down, and this is the first city that is understood to be a part of Canaan as the promised land. Now, of course, this is a bit complicated, and uh, it's not that beautiful of a story for everybody, because then there's a massacre of people and animals, um, and there's dark with the light. But if we just start thinking of this story as um, a moment where God showed up, where what was promised to be fulfilled was fulfilled, and we take that then with a mark in ears, um, that they didn't continue on this path of following God for nothing. Uh, for the Markan community during this time, the scholars think that um, it was during a time of a war between the Jews and the Romans. And this was also during the time when the second temple fell. So not only is this is right after, this is after Jesus has been killed, so the Messiah is dead, their temple is down, they are in the midst of another shame, another round of shame. So are they, as children of God, is it children of honor or children of dishonor? Um, what are they to do with this? So here they are, like Bartimaeus, who continues on the way with Jesus to Jerusalem where he will be killed. This Markan community knows that death is coming. They are no longer able to see their hope, their embodiment of hope, and yet they are reminding each other of their own ancients in retelling of Jericho, their ancient community that was around the walls of Jericho who somehow were able to see their hope again. Now this was likely just a story, so the massacre probably didn't happen. Um, but on a myth level, um, it speaks to a deep part of, of the human being um, that, that hope is possible, that they are in a Jericho moment and they are in the midst of death and there will be more death. And yet they do believe that somehow the walls will come tumbling down and there will be life again. One of the issues that I used to take with Job was that it wasn't, it wasn't convincing to me enough, this end, that he is given twofold of everything that he had before, and so he has a wife and he has a family again, but I thought, well, that doesn't really expunge everything that he had been through before, and what about all those people that had died, and what about what they had gone through before, all because of some sort of game that was being played? Like, what was that? Um, and I was invited, invited, by somebody who... Um, has been in the midst of her own Jericho moment um, to consider that even then, even after all of this death and loss, 
there is life again for Job. And it isn't the same. It doesn't take away the tragedy, but he's living into life. And in some ways, reading the text is like pushing me to accept that maybe he is living again, and maybe he's fine with it. I'm not fine with it, but he's fine with it, and I can work towards being fine with it for him. And I can try on what it's like to be okay with new life. During the Markan time, the fall of the temple, it's been noted that all the various groups, the Jewish sectarian groups, disappear. And scholars don't know why. And they have these theories. And um, during that same time is also the rise of rabbinic Judaism. And there was this meeting at Yavna. And one of the traditional theories is that at, at Yavna, it's similar to the Council of Nicaea, which um, ended up being that the people with more political power or stronger voices silenced or excommunicated or got rid of the other uh, voices, the other splintering groups. And so that's why there's no more sectarian groups. But there's this other scholar who says that um, that's the opposite of what happened, and that the Jews, the rabbis, all came together during this Markan community you know, the aftermarket community, but part of this time during the fall of the temple. And they, they came together and they said, if we do not stay together beyond our differences, if we do not unite um, and allow, our, allow each other to agree to disagree, then none of us will survive. And so they bind themselves together in this community. And so it just it strikes me that community through story, retelling of story, um, being a witness to, to grief, and um, walking through all of this together is what allows people new sight. Uh, it's the sight of hope again. And I was reminded of that last night as we were gathered, the diaspora, even the dream of the diaspora gathering together at homecoming, that this is a diverse community. And you all gather, we gather, and are able to do the mundane stuff of life and be in that resiliency place as a community. You hold each other's stories. And um, just as in my home, I have these scattered Bibles around. I've actually, you know, it's a scattered community of my community. And um, you all are a part of that. And so I just invite you to take a moment and to treasure that you are in the midst of community and that even if you're in a Jericho moment, new sight can come and will come. Amen.